Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Johan Devayer of ABB. Johan is the Global Industry Manager for Oil, Gas, and Offshore Power for ABB. Now, Johan, I recently saw a press release about the Jans IO compression project and ABB's role in that. And I knew I had to get somebody from ABB on the show to talk about uh, really about offshore decarbonization efforts. So, Johan, can you give me a quick introduction to yourself and to ABB? Hi, Joe. Yeah, with great pleasure. It's a real pleasure to talk to you and also about this exciting project. So ABB is a 130-year-old pioneering technology company. Um, we employ 105,000 passionate and enthusiastic employees, and I've been with the company for about 23 years. Uh, I've worked in many different parts of our business, including robotics and power grids and process industries. And today I'm responsible for our oil, gas, and offshore uh, power business. Um, so on this project, um, yeah, very exciting project. We're uh, delighted to um, partner with Chevron on this project. They are um, the investor and our partner, Acker Solutions. Um, and uh, yeah, a very exciting project for us. Yeah, yeah. I When I saw the, the announcement, there were just some really interesting things that jumped out to me in there. The idea that that well, I guess with the announcement, it said that that you'll be supplying the overall electrical power system for the for the compression project. This is and for people who don't know about the Jan's IO compression project, this is a multi-billion-dollar project offshore West Africa associated with the Jan's IO gas field, which is approximately 200 kilometers offshore at 1400 meters water depth. So I guess, Johan, what is like, this is, this is large. I have not worked offshore very much. What is special about this project? Well, the project is actually off the Australian coast off the Northwestern Australian coast, not Africa. And, uh -huh. um, what makes it special? Um, yeah, a couple of things. Um, there's, for us, we're combining two um, of our core technologies, uh, power from shore connection and then subsea power from a, a variable speed drive for a compression solution. Um, and that combination delivers significant value for the customer in terms of efficiency gains, and that results in significant emissions reductions. Um, secondly, um, 
it's the third time that we have deployed subsea, the subsea compression solution. And there's an increase in scale, an increase in the depth and the power, um, which is great to see you know, this technology utilized in an even more challenging environment than what we've used it before. And I think the third thing for me that makes this quite a special project is the role of digital in developing this project and shaping it through the conceptual stages, um, you know, through specifically simulation of the power system in, in static and dynamic situations. And I would say a fourth uh, special attribute of this project is the partnership with Ocker Solutions, because increasingly I realize there's not just one company that can provide these low carbon solutions to our customers. We've got a team up and it, it takes a whole ecosystem to really deliver the outcomes that customers are expecting. Yeah, those are, excuse me, those are, are very interesting ideas and really cool technologies to, to dig into. I, I think it's important to talk about how these, how these help decarbonize the idea of, of offshore energy production. And I just wanted to set the stage for the audience. The EIA reports that offshore oil production is approximately 30% of all production worldwide. So really any gains we can get in terms of decarbonization in, in offshore production ends up having a pretty significant impact on, on decarbonizing our energy use. So let's, let's kind of walk through each of those things that you talked about and, and see how, how those are making an impact into, I guess, making energy production more efficient. So the, the first thing was the, was the, land to sea uh, energy. Can you talk about what, I guess, what that is and, and how you guys are, what's different about what ABB is doing? Yeah. So what would traditionally happen is if you've got an offshore platform that's a significant distance from shore, um, power would be provided by a, a gas turbine that's mounted on the platform. And that's typically a single cycle gas turbine, um, which has a certain level of efficiency. Um, when you connect this platform to a shore-based power supply, you've got better options. You have the possibility to connect it to renewable energy, or in the worst case, to connect it at least to power that's generated by combined cycle gas turbines, which is the case in this Jans project. And with that, you get a significant gain in efficiency. And about 80% of the carbon emissions that result from oil and gas production, in this uh, specific project, it's gas production, um, result from the power generation. So that's a, the, by far the most significant source of carbon emissions in the upstream production process. So any efficiency gain that you can get um, improves the carbon footprint of the process. And, and that's exactly what happens here with this um, power from shore connection, which is about 135 kilometers, about 100 MVA of power that's transmitted across this 135 kilometers from shore um, to the platform. That results in, in a significant um, if 
efficiency gain um, for the power source uh, and the power supply to this project. I did not, I did not realize that 80% of emissions are really coming from the power. Yeah. I, I'm curious with the single cycle turbine that is, that is typically on the platform in the traditional sense, where is the gas coming from, from that? And how often is that a, a diesel engine or is oh, it ever you, a diesel engine? Yeah. On a, on a, on a, on, on most of these platforms, part of the production is gas. So there is gas produced from the field, either associated gas with oil or, or gas as the main energy stream. And that can be used to power the gas turbine. Um, so, but, you know, these gas turbines take up quite a bit of space on the platforms. They are big drivers of maintenance effort on the platforms. So, Besides the efficiency gain that you get, you also save space on the platform, which means the platform becomes smaller. And we must remember that these platforms are all steel, so and steel also produces a lot of carbon emissions in the production process. It's one of the uh, more difficult ones to decarbonize. So the smaller the platform, the smaller the overall footprint of, of producing this project. And, you know, as I said, there's also less maintenance on the platform. And if you have less maintenance on the platform, you have less ships um, traveling from shore to the platform, taking pe people backwards and forwards to do the maintenance. So there's actually quite some significant advantages supplying power um, you know, to these production platforms from shore. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a kind of an integral approach where making the connection from shore ends up feeding into that that kind of downstream sense of not not downstream oil and gas but you end up removing multiple steps that ultimately save you more and more emissions yeah i i'm curious with that the you also discussed variable speed drive power what can you talk more about that? And is that another one of these kind of incremental, um, incremental advancements that aid in this approach? Yeah, absolutely. So that's the second part of this electrical system that ABB is providing on this project. And what we're doing is we're able to place the a power transformer on the seabed at 1.4 kilometers depth. Um, through which, and we supply that transformer with a cable from a platform um, on which we've got variable speed drives. And these variable speed drives drive compressors on the seabed. And the fact that we place these compressors on the seabed um, increases again the efficiency tremendously in, in this compression process. Because if you, if you imagine sitting, putting the compressors on the platform, you've got the full distance of the pipe that leads to the production point that, that yeah, causes friction and that causes inefficiencies. You can eliminate all of that if you place the compressors on the seabed right at the production point. And that's the next advantage. And I, I see in literature that depending on the water depth, depending on the substance um, that you're compressing, you could have 20 to 60% further efficiency gains on top of what you already have with a power from shore connection by placing this electrical equipment on the seabed. That's really fascinating. And, and 
it's intuitive when you think about having to having to move your product, whether it's oil, in this case gas, moving that product from from the seabed all the way up to up to the the platform traveling through 1400 meters of of space that's just you're adding more as you said friction adding more distance you have to travel so it's i'm curious how difficult is it to have really any equipment at the seabed yeah that is a challenge and um so that's been the the investment that we've made together with our partners is to make sure that we develop a solution where you can place a transformer um, in the right kind of housing um, that can withstand significant water depths. And uh, we've now tested this up to three kilometers under the water. And this process has started, I think the first time we placed the transformer subsea was in 1998. Um, so this whole story of driving for efficiency gains is quite an old one. We've been at that for a long time, and so has our competitors and our customers. And then progressively, we've just continued to work at that um, and, and get do that and make that better and better and more and more reliable. And reliability is absolutely key, because once you've placed this piece of equipment down on the seabed, it's obviously very expensive to bring that back to the surface to do any kind of intervention to it. So the ability to make that absolutely reliable um, and to prove that it would be reliable, um, that's, that's absolutely key. And that takes rigorous testing and, and really years of development, which, which we have been doing. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it's really cool. And I, I immediately think about something. So my, my specialty is geothermal, and I immediately go to something like offshore geothermal, the idea of bringing hot water up 1400 meters is very difficult in terms of keeping it warm. So with something like, like that, putting something like a, like a turbine on the seafloor, where or how far away do you think we are from being able to, to generate the electricity, actually have the power station at the seabed? Well, that's a very interesting question. And, uh, you know, it sort of angles towards what are the other application areas for subsea power? And maybe I think there's two topics that I can really see with a lot of offshore wind developments. um, Obviously, there's now the opportunity to connect renewable power directly to platforms offshore. And you don't even have the constraint of having to have this long distance connection to shore. So... That's one possibility, and that needs some kind of a power distribution system. And you've got two choices. You can, again, build a big platform that's costly and that's, um, uh, you know, has a certain carbon footprint in the manufacturing process. Or you can place that subsea, that electrical distribution system on the seabed, and that would require switchgear and transformers. So that is totally possible today with exactly this technology that we've developed. And then... There's also quite interesting thinking around producing hydrogen offshore from renewable sources. So you could have a floating wind farm or a fixed wind farm, and then you could have the, um, the uh, rectifiers and things that you need, the electrolyzers, to produce hydrogen offshore. And you could even sh- store some of that hydrogen offshore and then compress it and, and pipe that you know, as a very um, 
dense energy form back to shore instead of having power cables coming back to shore and then generating hydrogen onshore. So again, for something like that, this is a little bit further out into the future, but I mean, we're working actively on the solutions that would enable that. Yeah, thank you for entertaining my my tangent there. So the the next thing that you mentioned, and I, I really want to dig into, is the idea of what you said, the role of digitalization. And in, in the press release specifically, it talks about, about automation and these digital platforms. Can you, what, what exactly is that talking to? Yes, so that, I mean, we, we generally see and, and are driving towards um, increasingly autonomous operations offshore. And there are various reasons for that. Um, let me just maybe go back to this specific project. So to prove the concept that you can have a power from shore connection, um, you know, across 135 kilometers and then a 10 kilometer long step out um, with subsea compression. And to, to ensure that this whole system is stable, that there's no resonance and, you know, to determine at what voltage levels, you know, the power should be transmitted, ideally to minimize losses. All of that requires very sophisticated modeling and simulation. And, you know, that's something that we've also been working at and that we've been developing over, over decades, literally, is the process power simulation and doing that in, in, in dynamic and static situations. So that's been absolutely instrumental to prove the concept on this project and to eventually then design it. And it will be instrumental in running this whole, whole system to ensure that it is stable and that it works reliably. So that's one aspect where digital has really helped to shape and, and bring this project to life. Um, obviously, another topic is how do you maintain assets that sit on the seabed? And so digital monitoring of these assets and then um, models uh, that predict when is maintenance and interventions really necessary and minimizing that obviously to the to the absolute max, best, as best as we can. That's important. So asset modeling, asset performance management, predictive maintenance are all topics that we have been talking about the industry for a long time and that again find a very specific application in, in these kinds of solutions. Um, so that's another area where I think that digital has been absolutely key. And I, I could maybe just add to that, then more generally, if you look at offshore production facilities, be that floating platforms or, or fixed platforms, there's, we clearly see a trend where uh, customers are trying to reduce staffing on these platforms and have more and more of, of the control done from shore, um, to obviously from sa for safety reasons, um, to minimize the transport backwards and forwards from these platforms. So again, digital is a key enabler there. And that starts with, you know, having the right kind of sensors connected to the equipment, the right kind of processing, the right kind of communication links that uh, is absolutely secure. So cybersecurity and all the developments to make this kind of control and, and um, communication stable and secure has been absolutely key enablers to be able to provide these solutions. And we've got quite a lot of work to do on, in that space. Um, you know, we're just starting to see the first platforms becoming completely unmanned and um, some of the processes running completely autonomously. But a lot more work to be done in that space. Yeah, I find that 
I find it really interesting. I've got some friends who work offshore as well site geologists, and that's one of those jobs that looking at the rocks is is one of those that you need the rocks in front of you. But as you point out, and as as we see, there's the the Mars Land Rover is has has gotten two cores from Mars that obviously has to be completely hands off, completely digital. And it's it is really only a matter of time before the well site geologist is actually sitting back in Houston looking at their looking at their cuttings that are 200 kilometers offshore. I'm, I'm curious with, with all of that, there's, we've been talking about the digital side of it and being able to communicate. Is that something that, that I guess, when was that able to really start happening? When were we able to start making all of these digital models and, and being able to make these communications? Well, it's happening as we speak. Um, I mean, the fact is that none of these uh, continuous processing industry uh, solutions, I mean, offshore production, all of these things, it cannot take place without automation. These processes are simply too complex and too dangerous to be operated without automation. And it's just a natural progression of the technology that we're now adding to the automation more and more sophisticated software systems and digital systems. Um, So... uh, we, we have announced uh, a partnership with Equinor and a project with Kraft, uh, in the Krafla field where we are developing a fully autonomous offshore fixed platform. And uh, that project is under execution as we speak. So by 2025, that project, th- that platform will be completely operated from shore. Nobody onshore, not even a helipad on, that, um, on the platform and, and no living quarters. So everything moved too sure. So that's under execution as we speak. That's, it's fascinating to think about being able to produce the amounts of production that we get from, from offshore and having that where you have not a single person on those platforms to really be running it. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief here at OGGN. Sorry for interruption, but I wanted to bring up a few quick things for September. First, our happy hour. If you don't know this, our happy hours are usually last Thursday of each month here in Houston, unless there's a holiday, and this month is no different. It's going to be Thursday, September 30th at the Canon. Our happy hours are much more than a social event. Our happy hours include a learning component, very strong networking, food and drinks, and then most importantly, the money that we raise goes to fight human sex trafficking. So by you showing up at our happy hours and participating, you're helping us fund the fight. So thank you. Then we have a new show, our Low Carbon Solutions show. It is awesome. Uh, It's very pro oil and gas. At the same time, we're also exploring low carbon solutions. And if you don't know this, besides the podcast you're listening to right now, we have 14 other podcasts for your listening pleasure. You can find them all at OGGN.com or any place that you download and listen to podcasts. Then finally, if you want to do something different, if you want to play a role with us here at OGGN, maybe have a little bit of fun, join the OGGN street team on LinkedIn. Just go search for OGGN street team sign up it's completely free to you it's our all volunteer group doing really cool stuff 
such as reading pro-oil and gas books to elementary school kids. Yes, you heard me right. We are helping educate our world's young people on the pros of oil and gas, on the advantages of the fact that hydrocarbons are the most uh, valuable molecule to mankind. We're doing that. Why don't you come help us with that? And if you don't want to help us with that, maybe you can help us with our social media or being a part of our press team or 101 other things. But we can't do anything unless you sign up at LinkedIn. So go do it right now. Hopefully this was not too much of an interruption. I will see you again next month. I, I think just one thing that keeps going in my mind, and I don't want to talk about it too long, but when we're talking about automation, people ultimately end up bringing up jobs. I'm just curious, what what is ABB doing as you are as you are really on the forefront of this technology and are are leading the way? What are you also doing to in that job space and say retraining staff and and preparing the workforce for an automated offshore production future? Yeah, that's a, a very important topic and one that's very close to my heart. You know, I mean I we are a technology company at heart, but technology on its own doesn't solve any problem. I mean people are truly our, our greatest asset. And um, we absolutely believe in always and continuously investing in people and preparing them for the future and uh, so for us this is a fantastic business opportunity and results clearly in employment so we are recruiting people and adding to our workforce to deliver these systems and to develop this technology and generally drive the energy transition and, and help make things more sustainable i think you know that's the only advice i can give to customers and countries that are concerned about jobs is continue to invest in people and prepare them for the jobs of the future because jobs will change. Jobs has always changed throughout all three of the previous industrial revolutions and now it will be through the energy revolution as well. And uh, the task is to make sure that the workforce is prepared for the future as some jobs end and new jobs start. That's, that's great advice. And I think that is something that we we should all, there's a reason we do continuing education. It is yeah. to keep us relevant and to keep us, keep us ready for applying new ideas, new innovations, new technology to increase efficiencies on our production. Yeah. With that idea, I'd like to talk about what are, I guess, what are the big buzzwords or the big technologies that ultimately feed into this? in terms of like when we're talking about automating a platform what are some of the things that say students or or young professionals should be training themselves in or searching for training in yeah that is uh, there is that risk of buzzwords and and um i'm i'm quite conservative and traditional in that sense that i think to to really bring value to our customers we need a good measure of domain expertise. So with that, I mean, we need people who's actually been on an offshore platform. And for young people, I would say that kind of hands-on practical experience to see how things really work out in the field will become more and more valuable in the future, um, you know, where more and more work is done from behind a screen. And um, so 
I, I wanted to start with that. Is let's not forget about domain expertise and people that you know that have that understanding and a feel for how the processes and the systems and the operational technology in the field works and performs and, and what the challenges and opportunities are for improving things. And then, of course, to, to bring in the future way of working, um, automation and specifically next level automation is absolutely key. So, you know, that's the, what used to be distributed control systems and what that would look like in the future. So that's a core offering from ABB. We are the global leader in distributed control systems and continuing to innovate and to invest in developing technology that would be sitting on top of the operational technology in the field to make sure that we have safe control and safe management of these systems and to do that in a robust and reliable way. The additional requirement today is to have visibility through these systems into the plant. So accessing all kinds of data and reading data from all kinds of signals that are available from the plant. And I, I read an interesting article about what you can read and understand about a pump by looking at the current that the motor that drives the pump draws from the electrical system and analyzing that data. So data analytics, the big data story, um, people that are involved in providing communication infrastructure that transmits the data from the field to offshore or processing plants or into the cloud in a safe and secure way. Those are, you know, so cybersecurity, big data, um, AI, you know, and, and all kinds of artificial intelligence systems that make sense and read patterns into data. All of those are topics where people will find employment and will find ways to add value to this whole story of, um, you know, making this whole production process, as long as we need fossil fuels, more and more uh, safe and more and more secure. And the great thing is, these are exactly the technologies that we also need to accelerate the connection of renewable energy sources uh, to the grid. So that's another topic, but those are some of the things that I think are key to make this happen. Yep. Yeah, and I I completely agree, and I I like what you're saying there with the with the amount of data we have and the different data that are coming into really that that we're producing that we can collect. That's something that we look at at PetroLearn is is there there are certain types of data that are not often examined, and those data they are giving us a signal. And the question is, can we pull something valuable from that signal? And these are these are ideas that really weren't able to be done until very recently because of the, the onset of things like cloud computing and AI and, and really having, for some, for some of these data sets, we're getting terabytes of data on 30 minutes of acquisition. So it's, it's a, that's something that you just couldn't think about even even ten years ago. It's hard to yeah. hard to think about it and then visualize it. So I did want to. I like the idea of you. You mentioned renewables. I think we need to. I'd like to go there before we leave leave the Jan's IO compression project. I just wanted to get a snapshot of when we're talking about the whole the whole idea. Do you have any type of projected cost savings with 
with, say, the onshore to subsea transmission versus versus the plat on platform power production like what's the cost savings and then i'm curious about what's the co2 savings as well well the, since this is a, a new project so we're not replacing an existing asset you've got to make a couple of assumptions so you know let's let's maybe look at the the, the carbon footprint and emissions because that's one that's probably a little bit easier to estimate is it's quite well known what kind of efficiency you can get from a single cycle gas turbine and what's possible from combined cycle gas turbines. So if we take industry averages, um, you can you can see what is what's the saving, how much less power do you need to generate because you've now got a, a combined cycle gas turbine supplying the plant. And then you've got to subtract the losses that you get from this 135 kilometer transmission link, which is something, but you know, much less than the efficiency gain that you get from the changing source. So if I if I look at 100 megawatts and the, the typical difference that you get between a single cycle and a combined cycle gas turbine, our estimate is that somewhere in the range of 170 kilotons of CO2 would be saved, um, you know, in this with the power from shore solution. Yeah, so that's, I just want to make sure that we qualify that that's based on the assumptions, you know, of industry averages for single cycle and combined cycle. So that's something that that's quite substantial. And then you have to add to that the, the gain because of subsea compression. So as I said, I don't have enough data and, and you'd have to ask Chevron that question of exactly how much is the efficiency gain, but we can see you know, again, looking at industry averages, that the efficiency gain is between 20 and 60%. So even if you take the 20%, and I think we've got um, three times uh, 11 megawatt uh, compressors on the seabed. So there's 35 megawatts there. That would have been, you know, at least one-fifth more. So again, you can just look at the, the power calculation and, and, and the typical emissions um, for per megawatt and do a calculation on what you save. So that'll take it over 200,000 uh, tons of, of uh, CO2 emissions um, prevented. And that fits with previous experiences. We've had a, a project um, in the North Sea with Troll A, uh, a platform where we have provided energy efficient technology and uh, power from shore connection. And there we save 230,000 tons a year. And that's been proven. That's a 2005 project which it hasn't got the subsea component, but just to, to get a feel for what kind of savings are we talking about. And yeah, in terms of cost savings, that's a more difficult one to estimate. So, I mean, we're not, as a company, we don't sell gas turbines. I don't know, you know, the difference in saving, but it is substantial. You know, if you look at the size of the platform, this field control center that is deployed at Jans, it's a fraction of the size of a full-scale offshore production platform. So you'd have to go and calculate the savings in steel and, you know, the whole production of that system. And uh, so there must be significant savings. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. And it, it is amazing to think about just the, the amount of savings that can be had. And, and I think it's important to, to point out as well that it, some of these are, are as, as you say, it's kind of intangible because there's just so many different aspects to 
how you actually calculate the total CO2 savings or how do you actually calculate the cost savings in terms of even the amount of electricity you use, the amount of steel that went into the equipment that you're buying. Are you using contracts versus buying outright? I think it it's important to to say it's it's it it's a it's a hard calculation to make. But I so I'd like to move to the idea of of renewables and you were pointing out that a lot of these technologies and a lot of the the automation and digital digitalization and and the the subsea infrastructure all of that can ultimately feed into renewable infrastructure in offshore production can you talk about that a little bit more yeah absolutely so if you think about the the big move that's happening here is it is electrification of processes production processes offshore and that's exactly what offshore wind is it's generating electricity offshore that needs to be evacuated reliably and safely so you know all the experience we have placing electrical equipment and operating electrical equipment hundreds of kilometers from shore is applicable to enable offshore wind and that's why we place these two together and not just placing the electrical equipment there but operating it from remote because i mean typically offshore wind farms and the offshore substations that collect the power from the wind turbines and then evacuate that and bring that onshore will be unmanned you know and it, it needs to be to make it as sustainable as possible and that that's the electrical systems and of course then the control um, that whole theme of energy management and using digital technology to to predict and to manage the whole energy system is again critical for integrating renewables in offshore production assets and also for operating offshore wind and connecting that to utility grids so that's another core and very exciting part of our offering is electrical system modeling and then um, simulation and then prediction and you need to do this in in, in different time scales i mean there is there's an element of it where it would be nice to know what my offshore wind farm is going to produce tomorrow so there's the hours and even days and weeks and there you need to integrate weather data with you know the electrical characteristics of the plant and whatever you could have learned over all the years that the plant has been operating and how the plant behaves in certain wind and weather conditions. So there's that time frame, but then there's also the dynamic millisecond kind of response and operations. You know, what happens if a turbine fails and, um, you know, if you have an emergency generator that comes in and, and how, how you keep these systems stable. So there's, yeah, very important enabler is the digital technology and how that interfaces with the operational electrical technology on, on these uh, facilities. Very interesting. So I think I know kind of where you're going to go with this, but I want to ask, where do you see offshore power in the next 5, 10, and 20 years? You know, if, if we will uh, reach our goals and um, get to carbon neutrality, you know, uh, in an acceptable period of time and at least, you know, meeting the targets that we're setting for ourselves, this is critical that we, as soon as possible, drive the enablement of, of bringing 
firstly, um, clean power to all kinds of production assets that is offshore, and at the same time, bringing renewable energy from places where you can generate that reliably and where it's not intruding um, on, on, on life on, on land, where we can do that safely. So I see a significant development here. And as I said, there's some interesting thoughts around hydrogen as a you know, way of storing energy. And I think that's going to play an absolute key role. And as we know, to, to have uh, the maximum benefit from hydrogen, it needs to be generated by clean electricity. And the best is to do that offshore. So I can absolutely see that in 10 years from now, there will be significant production assets, hydrogen production from offshore electricity, um, and then that's brought on shore. So yeah, a very interesting space and, and one that we're investing in and that we're developing technology for. Just a quick question on that. With hydrogen, have you guys specifically looked at anything on what is the most efficient or cheapest way to produce hydrogen in an offshore setting? Uh, that's, I think it's early days. I mean, there's a lot of research work, a lot of collaboration with partners and with customers that's happening at the moment that's trying to answer that question. So we're very happy to contribute. And, you know, we have a significant part of the value chain from, you know, the rectifiers and the whole electrical system because it is very dependent on the electrical uh, feed in to generate the hydrogen when you talk about green hydrogen. Um, so, but I don't have an answer to that question yet. I hope that we have one in a year from now. Okay. Yep. Thank you. So with that, let's do a few final wrap up questions. What is the most important book you've ever read? <laughs> That is a good question. I've read some really good books, but I would say being South African, um, A Long Walk to Freedom from Nelson Mandela was a book that really, really impacted me. And the reason is I'm fascinated by leadership and the influence that that has on, on people and on society. And that is such a great example of a, a, a brilliant leader that, under very difficult circumstances. Um, get the focus on what's important yeah, a life well lived that really made a difference. That sounds great. I'm going to add that one to the reading list. Next question. When will we be net zero? Uh, that's a million dollar question. I'm an optimist. I'm very hopeful that it will be earlier than 2050. Um, the tough as that may sound, you know, I really do believe that momentum is your friend and, and, there is significant momentum being built in awareness, in genuine will to do things in a more sustainable way. And um, you can see how technology development is also accelerated in this space. So when things like direct capture you know, of, of carbon out of the air becomes a possibility and we can do that at scale, it's not just the emissions that we're saving and reducing, but also removing and reversing some of what was before. So I think there are some exciting possibilities to, to really accelerate and to build momentum. Yeah, that's a, you're definitely in the minority at this point, thinking that it'll be before 2050. Because, but I, I, I like your, your optimism and your viewpoint that it, it really is the momentum that is the, the important part. And we've got so much momentum right now that yeah. if we, 
if we keep moving with that, that will that will expedite the process of decarbonization. Yeah, and that that cannot happen on a linear scale. That has to accelerate. So what I what I mean with momentum is that acceleration has to happen. Um, you know, kind of what you saw in Norway with e-mobility adoption. You know that started in a good way but once you you reach a tipping point it really becomes the norm and you get a very fast adoption where it just becomes the norm and i hope to see that broadly around sustainable energy yes yep i think that's i hope so too and it really it really once it becomes commonplace that's that's one thing i i continue to say is that i want geothermal to be a household word and once really once the idea of renewables and low carbon energy is a is a household name then i think it'll be easier to think just you go down to the the car dealership and you just naturally buy an electric vehicle it's just a a thing that happens it's no longer a a new novel idea yeah and with that Last question is actually, do you have a question for me? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, I mean, you, you speak to leaders and captains of industry all the time. Uh, I'd be fascinated to hear what excites you most in the field that you work in and, you know, from what you're hearing and what you're seeing. I actually, we didn't talk about it. We never got we didn't talk about your partnership with Acre Solutions, but that idea of collaboration and innovation that is that is built through partnerships, I really think that that is, that is the future and that's what excites me is hearing people actually being open and excited to work together. I think that that is that's the most important part because this this idea of decarbonization and of energy transition this is a this is a full societal uh it's a full societal uh discussion it is not something that is going to happen overnight it is not something that is going to happen in the developed world without it also happening in the undeveloped world it is something that needs to it needs to be everybody working together towards decarbonization and so that really is what excites me most is when when people talk about their partnerships and talk about the collaboration and talk about the solutions that they are developing together that is that's the most important part because it while we are we are all in business. We are competitive. We are we are actively trying to grow as as companies and as individuals. But I think if in the end, if there's nobody to sell to, or if there's nobody to generate electricity or power for, then it doesn't matter how great of an idea we have. Then we don't we don't have we may have the best product, but if we don't have a market, then then it doesn't matter how great our product is. So I guess that's it. Collaboration is, is what's most important to me and what's most exciting to me. 
Uh, that's fantastic. I am very happy to hear that. And I could not agree with you more. You know, a large part of, you know, this technology that we are developing uh, or that we have delivered or are delivering on this Jans project that we've been talking about comes out of just such a collaborative, a joint industry project. Um, you know, so and that's been running since 2013. And I think it's collaboration not only with other suppliers, but also with customers. I see a completely different way of working with customers as we're talking about this whole energy transition topic. So I completely agree with you that it is truly exciting times and, and lots of opportunities. It's really a great time to be part of the industry. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, with that, Jans, there, Johan, I'm sorry, I've been saying Jans Io this entire time. Johan, is there anything else that you want to say before we sign off? Oh, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you about a topic that, that is really close to my heart. Um, you know, we need to turn every single screw possible to reduce carbon emissions, um, you know, as we go through this transition. So, you know, as fast as we ramp up renewables, and that needs to happen as absolutely quickly as possible, we need to work on cleaning up and make the uh, traditional energy value chains as efficient and as clean as possible. So um, happy to be contributing to that from ABB standpoint and having to be teaming up and to be working with partners on developing the technology of tomorrow. Sounds good. Well, Johan, thank you for joining me and thank you everybody for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you want to hear more great stories from the energy industry, please connect with us at OGGN.com or on LinkedIn. Just search for the Oil & Gas Global Network. If you're in the Houston area, I would encourage you to go check out the Canon co-working space. That's where I work while I'm in Houston, and it's where we host our monthly happy hours. If you mention OGGN, you can get a free day pass. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.